Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is a one-part solo episode that was kind of intended as something of a political theory year in review. Rather than a sort of rehashing of all the political events or even all the topics I've covered on the podcast in the past year, I sort of try to develop a bit of a political theory of how we've thought about this year as a whole, how we seem to think about 2020 as a uniquely bad year, as an aberration, as in some ways feeling quite unreal, as if this isn't quite the real world and we're going to get back to it. And I sort of wanted to try and do an, a possible explanation of why we feel that way. And to do that, I've sort of returned to my roots and really gone back to the sort of political theory and the political philosophy of time. And I've drawn on a lot of existing authors and I try to cite my sources. But I think the analysis here that I'm about to give you is fairly unique to me although some of it you will have heard in other areas. I sort of wasn't sure if I wanted to do this episode, but similar to some of the past ones, once I sort of had the idea, I found I was able to write out a structure and arguments and sources for it really, really quickly. And so I just sort of knew that I had a piece to say on this. And so in the middle of other projects, I sort of decided that... um, I wanted to do this as a sort of end-of-year thing. I'll leave it as that, as introduction. I think the argument is fairly self-contained and largely speaks for itself. And again, whenever I do original work, I really welcome thoughts, comments, feedback, including critical feedback if you think I'm getting something seriously wrong. Um, You can DM me on Twitter or Facebook, and longer commentary you can send to my email, toby at politicalphilosophypodcast.com. As always, I do try and put a lot of time and thought into my solo projects, and I try and bring the audience something different, something they haven't heard before, and something that's potentially challenging even, that offers a a new perspective, or just things to consider. So if you do like this, please do consider sponsoring the podcast. I don't have any commercial sponsors. I think advertising ruins long-form podcasts, and the feedback I've got from my audience is the fact that we don't have ads is something that people like. So if you do want to to support me doing this, all of the costs of the co- podcast are the podcast. I'm going to leave that in order. Podcast look like I'm imagining like fish at a microphone. You dare write to me and say that might be an improvement. <laughs> All of the costs of the podcast are covered by listeners. I've been suggesting a uh, donation of two dollars an episode. So if the episode you're about to listen to is as invigorating or stimulating or as bitter and unpalatable even as a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on Patreon. 
And that's really simple and easy to do. You can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. All of the other links to past episodes, social media, stuff like that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And if you're not able to monetarily support, consider sharing episodes or links on your own social media. That's also really helpful for the podcast finding new new audiences. And as always, I'm genuinely grateful for anyone who does any of those things. Thank you. You're making the podcast possible. As I mentioned in this show, it's been a bit of a weird year for all of us, including me personally. So I'll just make my regular note that there is no set schedule for podcast releases at the moment. They'll come out when I think I have something worth sharing with the audience, and hopefully at some point next year. (laughs) I've been saying this for a while now, but, you know, um, I'll be able to find a, a regular schedule that works again. One final note is I'm recording this while um, uh, at the parents for uh, the holiday period, and I didn't have all of my usual recording equipment with me. So the sound quality, I I think, is fine, but is going to be slightly lower than when I have, like, my high-end podcaster mic and all that. So apologies for that, but I think it's completely coherent and listenable. So I think that's it. Let's get straight to it. This is me thinking aloud, essentially, about the political philosophy and theory of time and how we might use that to make sense of how we feel about the past year. Um, So this is a solo episode by me entitled 2020 Aberration or Omen. Maybe this is just a symptom of me being on Twitter too much, although people in sort of quote-unquote real life talk this way too. There's something I find a little odd about it, in that this has undeniably been quite a bad year for a lot of people, and a very bad year for some people. And I don't mean to trivialise that in any way. But... When I look at a lot of the commentary, a lot of people sort of posting in a almost sarcastic, eye-rolling type of way about, oh, this story is so 2020, or something like that, there, there seems to be an underlying assumption that what we're dealing with is some sort of utter aberration. One particular phrase that I found really, really interesting that I've seen a lot of people using is that on this timeline, that, and I think sometimes people use it without really thinking about it, 
But I find it really interesting. Where I think this came from is science fiction. Something like Rick or Morty, right, is a perfect metaphor and I think really cashes out how people are feeling about our current social and political movement. So Rick and Morty, for those of you who don't know it, is a sort of adult cartoon in a sort of sci-fi universe. And it's a multiverse in which the titular characters, Rick and Morty, have the ability to travel between different parallel universes. And a common sort of event on the show is that they'll take actions in one universe, completely mess it up and have something absolutely preposterous or dystopian or grotesque happened, and then sort of skip over to another universe running away from their troubles. And a lot of people have talked about this last year. And indeed, we've, we've sort of been talking about, like, the entire sort of post-Brexit and Trump period this way, as sort of being as if we're living on one of those messed up timelines. Um, and I think there's two sides to that metaphor, which are both implicit um, and sometimes just assumed, but I think to speak to how people feel about this. Um, one is that what's happened is somehow like an interference with the natural order of things. Like we're living in the universe in which some time traveller has hopped over into it and made a complete hash out of it. The other talk about being on a timeline is it implies that there are other timelines. And this is always like this implicit idea that we're going to be able to like hop back on over to another timeline. That this current state of affairs isn't permanent and represents sort of the bottom of the valley from which we will ascend in the future. And that, I think, speaks to just a general theme that I've been observing in how people have been talking for a while now, but particularly about the past year, is we talk about what we see happening with a sense of utter unreality, that we are on some alternate timeline, or that in some way this isn't real, or that it's all a mirage that is going to evaporate soon. And I just kind of thought that's something really interesting to try and theorise. Because, look, I do philosophy, not prophecy. I have some, like, at very best, informed guesses about where, where I think we're going. And my sort of informed guess that I've given before is, I think, current political dysfunction is going to be with us, at least in the short to medium run. Um, but again, I'm not a, you know, a, I'm not able to see the future or anything like that, so I don't know. That's just a hunch I have. And I think it's sort of interesting, the different hunches that people have. And sort of what I wanted to try and do here is to sort of theorise those hunches, or perhaps not even that, perhaps just state my own hunch, and then try and, like, go back and think, well, why do I have that hunch? Are there any sort of rational reasons for it, or is it just a different and opposing hunch? But I do think there are 
reasons that we that, that people have a sense of utter unreality at the moment. Um, I mean, for one thing, just that the world that we're living in is sort of quite different to what it was even a year ago, right? And not different for the better. So that can be jarring. I, I think there's something um, deeper going on there. And that's sort of what I'm going to try and uh, dig at in this episode. And to some degree offer a rationalisation for why I sort of have the opposite hunch that this is not an aberration, this is likely the shape of things to come. Before I do that, though, I want to quickly deal with two sort of sets of arguments that we've been debating, um, because I think when I start talking about this, people are going to naturally default to one of those arguments, because there's sort of two big visions of how we, like, contextualise sort of the Trump era in our history. Um, and I think people feel quite passionately about both of them, and there's quite strong partisans arguing for one versus the other. And my view is that both of them are wrong, and reasonably transparently wrong. So, sorry, I'm about to, like, just critically disagree with, like, 80% of my audience here, but I think it's just worth stating my own position and just sort of being honest about it. And I've, as I've always said, I think it's actually more respectful to someone to sort of say, this is what I think, and, you know, th that conflicts with you, and here's why, than it is to sort of, like, pretend that you think someone is making sense when they're not. Um, and I think my audience is used to this. Like, I have you know, listeners from the centre to the centre-right all the way to the far, sort of communist left. And I'm actually quite critical of a number of different arguments that come from anywhere across that spectrum. And hey, I might be right or wrong, right? And for this episode in particular, I'm talking in quite a general speculative way. But I think, you know, people... I don't do a podcast where I preach to the choir. I am about critically engaging with stuff. And I think people should be used to that. So with just that as preamble, I think there's two arguments, and I think they do sort of track what I'm increasingly just calling the normie Democrat versus Bernie Brothers divide on the American left right now, because there's no good phrases to refer to either side of that. Um, and we argue about even what the best phrases are, but everyone essentially knows what I mean there. So I'm just saying... Uh, Normie Democrat versus Bernie bro. And then you could maybe add within to the sort of far left, the sort of social justice crowd. Um, although, again, there's there's very contested how we should refer to that group as well. But let's just stay with um, our dear Normie cringe posters and our beloved Bernie brethren edgelords. And they both have a narrative about how we contextualize uh, the Trump era. So on, I think of these as, on the one hand, Trump as interregnum, and on the other, Trump as symptom, not disease. And like I said, I think both of these are wrong. Now, the first one, I'm actually dubious how many people really believe this. You know, so when I talk to sort of more normie Democrats online, this is not something they think. When I talk to Biden supporters online, 
this is not something they believe, right? Um, and in some ways, I sort of doubt Biden believes it. But he says it enough. Obama said it enough. Like, the party leadership says it enough. So I think we have to engage with it as if they're offering this argument in good faith. Although, at some level, I have to assume that, like, you know, Biden is not a stupid man. All of the sort of myths about his dementia aside, I don't, I don't get the feeling that this man is a fool or impractical. Certainly, Obama's not a stupid man. Certainly, I think my my read of Obama is he's actually very intellectually gifted and like, like someone who's probably a good deal smarter than me when it gets like if we both sat down and took like the same law course or economics course that we hadn't done before, Obama would probably ace it and I wouldn't. You know what I mean? Like. Like, or Hillary, you know, think what you will about Hillary Clinton, and I know some people in my audience loathe her, but none of these are dumb people, I think it's fair to say. Um, but they all really cleave to this idea that, yes, the, the right wing is, is sort of down a rabbit hole that we can't get them out of right now, and sort of, yes, American politics is very contentious and very divided, and obviously the government's not performing anywhere like what we'd like it to be doing in terms of either competence or ability to produce legislation. Yes, all of that's true to a degree, they would say. But it's this is just a moment that we're going to have to work through. And not only is it a moment that we're going to have to work through, but it's all in an instant going to snap back. Obama would always use this phrase, the fever will break. Biden in the campaign talked about, you know, after the election, and I quote, the Republicans will come to their senses, end quote. And, I mean, Biden's not been inaugurated yet. Maybe that'll happen. But the transition period does not offer us a great amount of optimism on that front, does it? Now, maybe you could point to the fact that as of time of recording, Republicans are showing some willingness to cooperate on a new stimulus bill. That's good news of a sort, although even that's weird and all over the place and dubious. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that that's a sign of future cooperation on any other big issue, and we won't just revert back to a sort of Obama-ear intractable opposition. I don't see current, whatever decisions our political leaders might make, I don't see the current really hostile negative partisanship going away. Um, and I don't see the US government suddenly working in a way that it hasn't in 30, 40 years. Because the bottom line is, behind all of this, there are cultural and historical and structural institutional reasons why, in Obama's words, we're at a high fever pitch. And, and that isn't going away while those reasons are still with us. And I've done an analysis on this, so I won't run through it all. But in terms of like the history of how the debate about race has played out in America, in terms of the mechanics of... Um, uh, how our institutions work, in terms of the sort of demographic coalitions which the two parties rely on, and in terms of the messaging both parties use to activate those coalitions. All of that feeds into a moment of very high partisanship, 
uh, a real hostility towards government, the other party, democracy as a whole, from the Republican side of the aisle. And those reasons have not abated. They have got more severe. And so it seems really irrational to me to think that that outcome is suddenly just going to go away without anything causing it to go away. Like I say, that it was just an aberration. It was something that was unreal, and it's just, it's going to miraculously disappear like a mirage. But it's not a mirage. It's part of our world. And for it to change, something would have to cause it to change. And I'm not really sure what that would be right now. So I'll refer you to my episode Brexit Congress Culture, where I make that argument in much more depth, and I've made it many, many times. But I just think that argument's largely wrong. The other argument I think is largely wrong is you'll hear this line um, repeated again and again and again in sort of like the Bernie sphere of media. And, you know, progressives more generally. Well, uh, well, I'll say something to the effect of Trump isn't the disease. He's a symptom of the disease. Now, I agree with this in a sense in that I think um, the current tone and tenor and ideology and core convictions of the modern Republican Party might undergo a tonal or rhetorical change post-Trump, although even that doesn't look like it's happening. But we're not going to suddenly see them become a quote-unquote normal, or sort of normal by international comparisons, centre-right party. And we're not going to see a return to our politics to a more congressional consensus and compromise model. Um... And indeed, you know, there may be future Trumps down the road. Now, I do think it's a little more complicated than that. I think there will be significant challenges to someone like, I don't know, Josh Hawley, if he wants to be Trump round two in 2024 or 28. You know, a lot of the Trumpist sort of appeals, but without the obvious sort of unforced messaging errors. Um, I think people might find it harder than we think to replicate, but the anger and the resentment and the division that, that led to Trump, yeah, no, that's correct. That's not going away anytime soon. Here's why I say the argument's wrong. Symptom bit I can agree with, but their prognosis of what the disease is is really weird and really just like, almost like a type 1 error, in that the analysis there goes is that people were really, really sick of, how would one say this, neoliberal capitalism, let's just call it that, right? Neoliberal capitalism, and the two parties weren't offering them meaningful alternatives on this, and people were poor and desperate, and in their anger and rage, they turned to, to Trump. And uh, Bernie said this, didn't he, in his um, New York Times editorial uh, interview. He said, yeah, when people are sort of struggling because of trade deals and the economic system and da 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 um, then they turn to racism, essentially. Um, well, there's just a lot wrong with that argument. We don't have racism in America because we lack a European-style welfare state. We lack a European-style welfare state in America because of our racial history. 
by the causality runs the other way. The, the, the other thing is, if you essentially want a, a sort of more equitable distribution, less power um, going to sort of capitalists and so on, it seems weird to vote for the political party whose raison d'etre is giving more power to capitalists. And what is Trump, if not a, a species of capitalist, right? Now, even if you accept that the Democrats are a fundamentally capitalist party who simply have a different, slightly more progressive vision of capitalism, if there's one party that really idolises, what do they call them, the job creators, it is the Republicans. Um, and as a final point, if you just talk to Trump voters, I've actually spent a bit of time doing this recently. I follow some sort of MAGA Facebook groups, you know, MAGA, Make America Great Again. And I've just sort of been listening to what they say and occasionally interacting with them in quite a nice civil way, just to try and say, hey, what about this? Have you thought about that? And just like feel out what their concerns are. I would say anecdotally, and this is backed up by a lot of polling evidence and sort of research, the main concerns there seem to be, one, immigration. Um, they, they really feel like this is destroying the country. And two, an opposition to uh, movements that have arisen um, around the struggle for anti-racist justice, right? So a very strong opposition to Black Lives Matter, uh, very strong opposition to Antifa as almost like sort of like they see them as like an Al-Qaeda or something, right? Um, very strong sort of culture war opposition to sort of quote-unquote woke people, political correctness, all of that. They, they are, there's not a lot there about neoliberalism. There's not even a lot there about trade deals and stuff like that. There's not an, a lot there. I mean, they do sort of have an analogue of like a corrupt political establishment, like the, the term the swamp occurs a lot and a lot and a lot. But once I, I've, I've asked them, what do you mean by the swamp? Um, because like, I think people who sort of hold the sort of um, symptom, not a disease narrative might see that as an analogue of what we talk about when we talk about money in politics or, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I've just asked them, what do you, what do you sort of mean by the swamp? And they mean something completely different. They mean that they think our um, politicians are in the pockets of China and that the, 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 well, I mean, I'll just use their word, that they're selling out to the globalists, which has a subtle, or in fact, not particularly subtle, subtle um, sort of anti-Semitic connotation to it. But in terms of what's motivating these people, those are the issues that you get when you just talk to them, or in a proper sort of empirical large-scale study, you survey them. So it is true that the sort of foundation that Trump was able to ascend and place himself on top of, that foundation isn't going away, and someone else, yes, in the future might be able to sort of ascend to the top of that foundation, do even more damage. And even if they don't, 
having that foundation there is in itself a problem. But I think there's this weird thing where, like, both liberals and non-liberals alike assume that the entire world revolves around liberalism, even though none of our last six presidents self-identified with the term. Obama wouldn't call himself a liberal. I don't think Biden does. But the idea is that liberalism is the dominant order, and then there are reactions to liberalism. Well, that's true enough, right, in the sense that liberalism is a thing. It is part of the order of things, but only part. America is also built not just by liberal theories, but by democratic and republican ones. It's built by the logic of capital. It's built by ideas of racial supremacy and divine mandate, even. Liberalism is sort of a part of what's built the American system, but not the only part and maybe not the major part. And it's also not the case that everything that isn't liberalism is a critique of it. People have different ideologies, right? And that, you know, a lot of times people are pushing for something based on concerns that are just completely different to our concerns. You know, what is the overall view here? The overall view doesn't have a heck of a lot to do with a critique of a capitalist world, unless unless capitalist is read as some sort of global, vaguely anti-Semitic conspiracy, right? No, the concern is that white culture is being replaced. That's the concern, and that white culture is good, and that it's something worth protecting, and that it is threatened by other ethnic groups. That is the prime concern. Now, of course, there are still some normie Republicans out there who go along with it because they like tax cuts, or I think a lot of it, maybe even most of it, is just we've got to a place where we interact with political parties not as vehicles that can deliver us policy preferences, but much more akin to the way that we interact with sports teams. It's our side, we cheer them on, we boo the other side and taunt the other side and get a certain pleasure out of taunting the other side, right? I think a lot of people are just there because it's their team. But if you're asking for a sort of driving ideological impetus, it's actually largely unrelated to the sort of economic concerns that the right has been talking, that the left, sorry, has been talking about. And they could care even less about the right's economic view. Trump won the primary in 2016 because he appealed to a sense of white identity directly that the right had been more comfortable in recent cycles dog-whistling to, and it turned out people liked the direct appeal. And the fact that he wasn't or didn't present as a doctrinaire conservative on economic matters, though he has governed on as one, sort of wasn't a huge factor either way to them. I think that's much closer to the reality. So here's why I went through all that, is yes, Trump is a symptom, not the disease, but the disease isn't liberal hegemony. The disease is fascist ideology, which isn't so much a reaction. It's its its own thing, you know? And I think why I push back so hard there is there's an optimism implicit in the view that if only we hadn't have done NAFTA, we wouldn't have Trump. Because it implies a very easy way out, which I think is is... It has more steps, 
So, you know, talking of Rick and Morty, that line, that's just slavery with more steps. This is just a, a very sort of ungrounded optimism, like the sort of the fever will break view, but with more steps. Because the fever will break view is that without us really having to do anything at all, um, people who are viciously opposed to the first black president, who think the entire government is a conspiracy against them, who believe in some sort of... You know what I still get when I talk to these people? That one weird phrase George H.W. Bush had, the New World Order. That. That. With all of its connotations. That's what they think is coming. Right? Now... The, the, the sort of simplest way is to just say, oh, it'll just disappear naturally, inevitably, without us having to do anything, because this is a perversion, and um, it's obviously unreal and preposterous, and it, it will just go away. The with more steps bit is to say, it will just go away, that the reason it exists is because our social and political order is perverse, because it's been captured by billionaires, and um, everyone just really hates capitalism, and as soon as we make structural change, as soon as we get a $15 minimum out, uh, $15 an hour minimum wage, it will, it will just go away. Indeed, if we even offer people that, if we even run on a sort of more direct social democratic platform, then all of these Trump voters who've been disadvantaged by the global economy, They'll just come over to us. And there is just very, very, very little evidence to suggest that that is correct. For one thing, Trump voters are actually a lot more affluent than Democratic voters. I think the average Democratic voter in both 2016 and 2020 was had a sort of household income of about $50,000 a year. And the average Trump voter had an average um, household income of $70,000 a year. So there's a big gap there. Um, these aren't, or they aren't exclusively poor people. They're status insecure people. They're insecure that their status of being entitled to immediate deference as a white person or as an older man is under threat. And in some ways, they're right to feel that it's under threat, because it is. I mean, I would say perhaps correctly um, under threat and legitimately under threat. But that's that's the animating driving force. And it's just, on the one hand, we've got people saying this will all just vanish by itself. And on the other hand, saying, well, if Democrats, it'll all just vanish as soon as Democrats adopt this messaging, which it turns out is the messaging we've been wanting you to adopt for a couple of decades anyway, right? But do, do both of those not just feel um, a tad like wishful thinking to you? And both of them, actually, I think, speak to this idea that I started with of unreality. Like we're living in a dream world, a nightmare world, maybe, but one that at some level isn't real, and that, we'll, that we'll, we, we, we will awaken now we might that that awakening process might have a few more steps in one version, but I think they both speak to this feeling of of unreality. And here's sort of 
I was thinking about this because I, I just don't feel that way. This is the real world. This is the world we're in. The sort of tail end of the Trump era is our starting point for wherever we might want to go in the future, right? But I sometimes feel it too. I do sometimes. I can get it. I can taste the emotion there behind feeling that this is all a bad dream from which we will wake. Now, let's just assume I'm right there, right? You don't actually have to agree with me, by the way. But just assume I'm right for now, and then let's see what analysis falls out of it, if I am. And at the end of that analysis, you might go, but yeah, I still feel like you're wrong, and this is some sort of bad dream from from which we'll awake either just by ourselves, or, you know, if we just make these economic changes or change the Democratic Party platform, then 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 we'll sort of wake from it. Um, say that that feeling which I think it is, is illusory, right? I think the, the, the really interesting question then is why do we have it, right? And I think partly we've sort of become committed to narratives about the world that make us feel good, even if there's quite good reasons not to believe in them. It's a very useful thing for Barack Obama to happen to believe that the fever will just break, because he doesn't want to have to speak directly to the fact that some 20% of Americans are still overtly racist. He wants to sort of be a, a healing president, a, dare I say, post-racial president, Biden, you know, in a country that's sick of all this, it's very useful for him to be able to say, this is now the return to a new normal. And people in power have an enviable habit of being able to convince themselves and really believe in their hearts that things that are useful for them to believe are also true. And that's the faculty of all of us, right? And let's be honest on the left. Is it really that if the Democratic Party includes Medicare for All in its platform, suddenly all of these, like, people disaffected with the entire political system will just come over to us? Is that really what we think? Or would that just be a very, very useful thing for, to be true? It would be, it would really make our lives a lot easier if that were true, right? And I think all of us have that you know, the thing that it's most useful for us to be saying in any political moment, it's very, very easy to to convince ourselves of. So that's the first reason, but that's a superficial reason. And I think it's a reason that only speaks to people who are already very politically invested. If you're very invested in the Obama presidency, or if you're very invested in a sort of Bernie Sanders-esque challenge to the Democratic Party, then it, you definitely have strong motivations to convince yourself that if only we did the thing I happen to want to do, then these other problems would go away, right? But actually, I think this this broad this, this is a sort of a broader social malaise, right? Like everyone sort of feels this, even people who aren't strong partisans or even really aware 
of those narratives. And I always have to remind myself, right, that I spend a lot of time on these sorts of discussions, but they're discussions that, like, maybe 10% of America cares about, you know? Whereas just generally, I think people feel a sense of unreality, of, of experiencing the political world as living in a dream. So it can't be just that. Um, and this is my thesis. And my thesis requires you to accept a big empirical and predictively empirical claim about the world that may not be right, that I don't know is right, right? And that claim is that we are living in an era of decline, of political and social and economic decline. And I'll come back to that, right? But that's the premise you have to accept for the argument I'm about to give to work. And that premise may not be right, and indeed is sort of like open to falsification by future events, right? But before we get to that, here is my thesis for what is ultimately generating this. And, and keep in mind, I'm trying to explain a process that is occurring largely on a subconscious level, perhaps almost exclusively on a subconscious level. But here is the thesis. Central to the ways all of us understand politics, and I'm not just talking politicians here, I'm talking about how ordinary people feel who perhaps, you know, aren't involved in all of these arguments, but what, like, what's their take? How do, what's their gut reaction when they see something on the news, right? What thoughts come into their head and why? So the ways all of us feel about politics at their heart all revolve around time, right? We all have often, in fact, usually implicit and subconscious understandings of and conceptualizations of and visualizations of social and political time, right? And the understandings that we have, particularly on the left, leave us really, really ill-equipped to be living in a time of decline. And because these understandings are subconscious, to a large degree, implicit, assumed, it's quite hard to then see obvious disconfirmation of them and go back and question them, because we weren't really aware that we held them in the first place. Instead, what arises from that disconfirmation is a sense of unreality, the dream world that I've been talking about. So, in the remainder of this episode, I'm going to try and make really explicit what I think those underlying assumptions about time are, and what exactly is the process that then leads us to this feeling of unreality. Just before that, let's circle back, because I did say this entire argument, you have to buy the premise that we are living in a time of political decline. Now, a lot of people, and I think for the reasons I'm going to explain, will immediately say, oh, whoa, that, that sounds a bit pessimistic. We don't have to be living in a 
time of decline? What about if we had more consensus and compromise? What about if we did Medicare for all? What about if we did structural reform? What about if we got money out of politics? Right? I do require you to, like, buy into this for the argument to work. And actually, my own feelings on this are ambivalent, because let's just forget the future for a minute, and let's just sort of talk about the general trend line of, I don't know, the past 10, 20 years, something like that. And is that sort of trend line going up or down? Eh, well, it sort of depends what you're, you're, you're measuring, right? Certainly it seems like our political systems have got worse. We're seeing a sort of global rise of the new right, you know, and people will complicate that and point out that there's very big differences between Brexit and Trump, which there absolutely are, and differences, again, between Orbán's Hungary or Bolsonaro's Brazil, which, of course, there are. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's worth putting that in the, the broader historical context. Uh, th these are troubling and dangerous and damaging events that have happened. You know, no one, I think, has ever accused me of trying to sugarcoat the Trump presidency. But it is worth remembering that racism and nativism and xenophobia are nothing new to our political culture. And certainly, you know, for all its evils, the present state of affairs surely has to be better than the state of affairs in, you know, what, the 50s in America, where you had a lot of states ruled, at least regionally, by one-party authoritarian governments that relied upon, utilised and glorified mechanisms of violent racial terror, not even a normative statement. I think that's just a des descriptive statement of where a lot of America was at, right? For all its evils, probably better to be alive now, certainly better to be a woman or a black person who's alive now, right? So we can perhaps sometimes over-egg, you know, like how much of an aberration this current state of affairs is that you know there are other ways though in which we do seem to be trending down one of which would be political culture um you know if you look at measures of partisanship how much people dislike or distrust or even hate not just politicians but voters of the other party i, I think the finding is pretty robust that that has been going up and up and up and up and up and up and not only has it been going up it's been going up without us being able to find good ways of dealing with that new culture and living in that new reality, which goes to my next point in that the efficacy of political institutions, and a lot of my analysis here is really just on the states, although you could maybe also include Britain in this, the efficacy of our political institutions really is at an all-time low, right? I mean, there's probably bits of American history that I'm, I'm forgetting here. Um, but, you know, certainly the on-the-ground lived reality um, for a lot of people in the civil rights era was worse than it is today. But we had political structures that were 
to some degree able to sort of absorb that debate and process it and react to it. And I know, I know, I know that this is unfinished business. I'm not saying that we suddenly achieved racial equality in 1968 or anything like that, right? But the government was capable of producing comprehensive reforms in response to that in a way it just simply isn't today, right? Like paralysis and gridlock are the norm. Or if you want another example, think about how poorly we've responded to COVID. And something that always is like a brain breaker for me is that people compare it to the Second World War, which was a much more significant challenge, let's be real. And in the Second World War, the American government was able to churn out 10,000 new tanks and 15,000 new aeroplanes every single month in an age pre-internet, almost entirely pre-computers, and without all of the sorts of other technological advances we have. I do not think we could do that today. We couldn't, for, for the longest time, we couldn't churn out enough bloody face masks, you know? Like, our ability to, like, actually do things is wildly lower than than a few generations before who did not have the technology that we have but that like our political systems are just functioning far worse and as much as i have supported the protests we've had from black lives matter and so on um which by all accounts, are larger numerically in scale than what happened during the civil rights movement, I am very pessimistic that that'll lead to any sort of substantive reform. The the, the government won't be able to absorb that discontent and sort of navigate the conflict and so on and produce reforms to speak to it. There's a line protesters always say, this is what democracy looks like. Well, if you're talking about elected democracy, protest is what it looks like when elected democracy fails. And that people feel, I think correctly in a lot of cases, that what they want and what a majority of the population wants is not achievable through the system of votings and elections. So, although, yes, and we should never overrate this, and we should never be nostalgic about returning to the 50s, the fact does remain that the ability of our political systems to do really anything is low, and when they do it, they do it badly. Like, take the Trump era. Even if you wanted to cut taxes for the rich, the way they went about it, I don't think anyone thinks is the most sensible way. You know, yes, we did get COVID relief done, but too late and very weirdly designed and implemented. It's just a very stalled system, and when it does take action, it's very botched. So, and then if you project that into the future, I do not see that changing. I see that getting worse, right? Now, another way in which we might be in decline is economically, and this is, I think, where the case is the clearest, in that from the mid-70s through to, like, the early 2000s, we sort of 
we lived in what economists call the great moderation. So in other words, I'll do this very simply because we don't need to go into the economics, but the 60s and the 70s were periods of you know, alternating quite high employment and inflation, economic instability, and there was sort of a thesis, um, the Phillips curve, that like there was sort of a mutual opposition between inflation and unemployment, and the job of central banks and policymakers was to sort of like balance the two, and you sort of got this monetary policy implemented under Wachner, the so-called Wachner recession, that seemed to sort of do the job. And though we had a business cycle, we had boom periods and downturns, it was managed. It was, uh, to use their phrase, moderate, you know? And, it, and a lot of people really believed, not without evidence, I guess, that the sort of Great Recession of the 20s and 30s and stuff like that, that was a relic of the past when people did, just didn't really understand how to use monetary policy. And that now that we did, that would that would just sort of be how we went along. Now, of course, there were problems within that and did that wealth reach all people and so on. But you didn't really have these sort of world destabilizing economic events, at least in the first world. You know, you want to talk about Asia and Africa and so on. There's other stuff going on. But, like, Americans don't think about that. Way. Yeah. But just in a sort of America or maybe, like, OECD country-centric view of the world, macroeconomic performance was very, very stable by historical standards. And I think that was sort of the assumption that that was the new normal. And then, of course, 2008 happens. And maybe that's just an aberration because we didn't properly regulate the housing industry or something. And then the COVID recession happens. And like, you know, if another one like that happens, we will be definitive. I mean, we are definitively out of the great moderation. Right. But it seems like the world has got a lot less stable in terms of like big macroeconomic performance. And it also sort of feels like, I think a lot of economists are sort of grappling with this idea that the tools they had, the sort of buttons and levers to pull, that achieved that moderation in the past, now no longer really seem to work. Like, they're not connected to anything anymore. Or maybe just the world has changed, right? And we're trying to use tools that no longer have any purchase on it. I don't know, right? A lot of stuff about our modern world, like, doesn't make sense in terms of, like, the sort of macroeconomic framework that, that like, I learned when I studied economics. So, like, why does rising GDP and falling unemployment not lead to an upward pressure in wages anymore? Why does it seem like the Phillips curve basically doesn't exist anymore? Why? So there's a whole bunch, bunch of questions like that that just sort of defy the typical macroeconomic model. And that's perhaps another sense in which we are living in an age of decline, and that will interact with our political systems. If these big, you know, 2008 COVID recession-style shocks are the new normal, then we're going to need political systems that are ready, in FDR's phrase, for aggressive, persistent experimentation. We're going to need smart, competent people who are empowered to 
and able to make big structural changes in an informed, responsible way. And that last sentence I said, no single word in that sentence corresponds to the reality of what we have in our political systems. And of course, you know, while I doubt the narrative that economic malaise gave us Trump, if, if like, these shocks are the new normal, that's going to do things to our political system, surely, right? So I think that's a nuanced view on, like, are we in an age of decline or not, in sort of some ways and not others. Um, but another thing that, like, if I were to try and project that all forward, is I'd say it's not just that bad stuff has been happening and seemingly happening a bit more frequently. It's that we lack the tools to get out of it. We lack the abilities for a sort of internal reform of the system. Like, like I say, central banks have sort of shifted gears a bit in response to this. But the old monetary policy tricks aren't working anymore. They're simply inadequate to the scale of the challenge. Um, the American government has just really, like, I don't think anyone can look at what we have now and think these are the smartest people making decisions on the best evidence and empowered to do so. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad Trump's gone. That is better. That is a step up. But if we are living in a world with challenges that we didn't have before, we're also living in a world that lacks the means to, like, deal with those challenges. And so, yes, I can tell a story about how the political system could be reformed, but that story always feels quite far-fetched to me. I could tell a story with economics about, like, how we really get a handle on this again, but again, that feels quite far-fetched. Things continue as they are for the foreseeable future. Quite bad, but not apocalyptic. That feels pretty plausible to me. These are just my hunches. But also, all of those things I've just outlined interact in complex and unpredictable ways and set us down new and dangerous and unforeseen chains of events that lead to some very dark places indeed. That also feels plausible to me. Now, ultimately, I don't know. Like I say, I do philosophy, not prophecy. One final point I'd make, though, is that if we are living in an age of decline, that would be nothing new, right? I talked about the turbulence in the 70s, but go back a little further to the two world wars. That <laughs> obviously <laughs> set us back on a number of fronts, right? The Pax Romana was only quite a brief period in Roman history. A lot of the rest was very turbulent. There have been declines. There have been significant declines. Human progress isn't an unbroken ascent. It's ups and downs and detours, you know? And maybe, like... I don't think it's unthinkable that, that that is a way of sort of processing the world. And yet it somehow feels unthinkable. Why? Well, let's just postulate that we are in an age of decline, right? 
maybe we are, maybe we aren't. I think it's complicated, and I actually have conflicted feelings on it. This is my point in trying to sort of theorise and explain the sense of unreality that I've been focusing this episode around. In the modern age, we have a variety of different political ideologies and sort of just subconscious ways of thinking about politics that I think leave us really, really, really ill-equipped to, to make sense of the world if the world is in decline. Political, social, cultural, economic decline, right? Um, and so this goes to a sort of bigger point. People, when they think about politics, think about it as control of space and control of resources, which it is. But sort of deeper than that, at a more fundamental level, politics is about time. Understandings of time permeate everything about our political discourse, and again, about the basic and often subconscious categories and concepts that we impose on social reality in order to understand it, or to think that we're understanding it, right? So this is really complicated, and there's a lot of work done on it, but I think I can simplify it down to three bullet points. Here's how time is fundamental to politics. First, historic time is a source of legitimation. Second, time is a political good, and three, time is ineliminatable in conceptualising future social progress. Let's go through those quickly. First, time is a source of historic legitimation. At its heart, um, political systems, political ideologies don't just try to control territory and goods, they try to control timelines. This is our timeline. We are the authentic representation of this timeline. There's often um, a, a point in the timeline that serves as an origin of the legitimacy of that timeline. So this goes all the way back to the divine right of kings or something like that, but you could think about it as like the founding of America is a sort of like historic big bang of political legitimacy. There's no legitimacy before that. Legitimacy arises from that event, and the person who can control that timeline, who can say, why do we argue about what's constitutional or not? Well, it's a legal argument, but it's a legitimacy argument. This is the correct interpretation of our traditions. Or, you know, I spent a lot of time on, like, how progressive liberals and libertarians will argue about how they are sort of the correct, the real heirs of classical liberalism. Well, why does that matter? But it does. We're always going back from the past to locate legitimacy there and then push it forward as a way of us controlling present time, right? So time functions as a foundational legitimizing factor in political discourse. That's point one. Point two, time is a political good. So um, this is what Elizabeth Cohen um, is theorizing in her work, The Political Value of Time. And so, you know, political systems and ideologies 
distribute material and symbolic goods, the so-called question of who gets what, when, why, right? Well, who gets what we spend a lot of time on in terms of, like, economic distributions, libertarianism versus social democracy, stuff like that. The why, do people deserve to have this? Do people deserve all the money they own? Or is it more of like a social good? All those questions, you're familiar with that, right? The when bit is, is more interesting and more fundamental and under-theorised, which is that time is a political good, right? How long do you need to wait to get your citizenship? How long do you need to serve in prison for a crime? When are the election deadlines, right? When are the, how long are the periods between elections? And just like people debate and compromise over like, well, we think the top marginal tax rate should be this. No, we think it should be this. They debate and compromise over who gets what amounts of time, essentially, right? Um, you know, we want a more lenial criminal justice system. We think murderers should only get 10 years. Oh, well, we want them to get 50. Okay, we'll compromise at 25. That sort of thing, right? So. Time is a political good, and I'm going to come back to that one. But then the final one, and I think that really explains this to the heart of it, is that time is integral to how political ideologies work. I think one of the things that... Because here's the thing. If you think about political ideologies as fundamentally a set of goals that can be a little bit misleading, right? Um, because for one thing, it's not just goals about, oh, we want this tax policy or immigration policy. There's values that underpin those goals, liberty, equality, freedom, fairness, right? But then even below that, right, you have to have some sort of account of the actualizability of those goals. And the best ideologies, the one I pers the ones I personally favour, are self-conscious about that process, whereas others aren't. Here's what I mean by that in very, very simple wor words. If you're saying, we want X, Y, and Z out of the world, right, where X, Y, and Z can either be policies, but they can also be values. We want a more just world, or a fairer world, or a freer world, right? But if you're saying, we want X, Y, or Z out of the world, that necessitates having some sort of understanding of the processes through which X, Y, and Z might come about. Assuming the, the world doesn't already have, or only partially has, X, Y, and Z in them, right? And this occurs at an almost entirely subconscious level, and even quite sophisticated political theorists are often unaware that they're doing it, but we all do it, we all do this, is we have ways of conceptualising and visualising what social and political time and change look like. And this isn't a coincidence. This is something that comes to us from our history, right? This isn't actually how human beings sort of quote-unquote naturally think. I don't think that these subconscious processes I'm talking about are artefacts of our evolution. I think they're artefacts of our history.
right? So the, the great ideological traditions of the current age, conservatism, socialism, liberalism, all sort of come about, or they reach their most fully realised form in, what, the mid-1800s, a time when change, the Industrial Revolution, urbanisation, were really taking off in a way that was unparalleled in human history and must have been very disorientating for the people living through it in many ways, right? Um, and all of the thinkers of this time really grappled with time much more self-consciously, I think, than we do now. But we still nonetheless have, you know, as it sort of floated down the stream of historical tradition, historical thought, and settled into the sediment of our subconscious, a number of conceptual innovations that they came up with in order to make sense of that world, right? This is the bit that's, that some people find terrifying, but I just think is so cool to think about. Your brain is built by history. Your gut reactions, your basic visualizations that you're not even aware that you're doing, are built by history. They're not a product of your evolution. There's not, it's not something that's, that's intrinsic to you as a biological creature. It is something that was created. It is something that was designed by and perpetrated on mankind by people who saw themselves as social engineers, who changed the building blocks of how our minds worked, and did so intentionally, and did so with malice of forethought. Okay, so, how did they? Because, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Marx is obsessed with time, Hegel is obsessed with time. I mean, these are people for whom history is going to end, you know? Time will continue, but history, political time, is going to end. The liberals of that period, John Stuart Mill, are obsessed with time. It's a much under-theorised part of his work. The conservatives of the period are obsessed with time. Not, I would say, I think a, a simple protection of the status quo and an aversion to change is a simplistic reading of conservatism. But they're obsessed with it. Now, I'm not going to go through all of those theories in detail. But here's what I mean. I'll try to do a very simplified form in terms of just three. Liberalism, socialism, and conservatism, which have visualizations of, of political time that are different. And this is what I think really trips us up in our analysis, is that we assume, again, subconsciously, everyone has the same basic visualization as we do, but they don't, right? Um, so liberalism has often at its core the idea of progress, right? Um, now, that's actually been stripped out of some modern philosophic liberalism, I think much to its detriment, but that's a different story. But there's two, and I'm going to talk about these in terms of visualizations. There's two visualizations, one of which I'll call the naive myth of progress, and the other of which I'll sort of call open-ended progress, right? So the, the, the naive myth of progress is that history is a linear ascent, 
Um, it's like a line on a graph going up. We're building on the accomplishments of, of those who went before us. Now, a lot of people on the left sort of decry that, but actually the liberal naive myth of progress conceptualization is implicit in a huge amount of how even the far left talks, right? So we talk about, like, people who are doing stupid or bigoted things, we talk about how they will be judged by history. We talk about being on, quote, the right side of history, end quote. Well, what does that mean when you actually stop to think about it? Well, it's this sort of liberal idea of progress, right, that history has a direction. It's not just a bunch of stuff that happens. Now, None of this is to say these narratives are true. I, I actually, I don't think history has a direction. I think it's just stuff that happens. But a lot of people, even actually people who sort of identify as to the left of liberals, do have, are, are implicitly evoking, and at some subconscious level must have absorbed, that idea of progress. And it, it actually occurs across the ideological spectrum, although it's most predominant in, in liberals. The the other liberal way is what I think about as open-ended, is of um, the future is just like crossroads before you. You can take many different directions. Things can get better, things can get worse, and we have some, though not complete, agency over how we do it. So the sort of visualisation there is almost like you're standing in a field and you can walk any which way, you know? I think someone like Keynes... Uh, John Maynard Keynes is probably the best um, exemplar of that. And in my own personal view of the all, all the ways we have, that's probably the closest to being correct, if I can say that. But it's also, it doesn't seem to catch on as much. It doesn't seem to be picked up as a, as a, as a rhetorical trope as much. And even the liberals who are very self-conscious that, yes, things can get better, things can get worse, they always do tend to focus on the better. They always do tend to focus on the progress side. So even with the sort of more open-ended conception of change, there's still always th this idea of, like, justice as climbing a flight of stairs, justice as the light at the end of the tunnel, justice as sort of something which we, we, we crawl towards, right? Um... There's a further distinction within liberalism of what, what you might call self de of development and perfectibility. So just on the individual level, you could say individuals, we want them to develop. This is development and get better and improve. But there's not a specific end point we have in mind. It's open-ended and people can sort of develop in different ways. That's John Stuart Mill, right? The other is perfectibility. So this is like T.H. Green, which is want, we want them to get better and improve so that they can become X, right? And just as on the individual level, you can see that on the societal level too. You have, like, we want societies to be pluralistic and explore different ideas and, like, branch out and, you know, that sort of open-ended view of development. And then you have, like, I don't know, the John Rawls view of, like, we want them to get better and improve so that they can reach this point that I've decided is the right point, right? So even within liberalism, there's there's nuances, and I think, like, even people who have this sort of progressive view um, have it in different ways. We could then talk about the socialist view, 
The socialist view, at least sort of like the hardcore socialist view, tends to be very interested in revolutionary moments where where, where future change is conceived of as a decisive break, and sometimes even an inevitable break. And, and, and I sort of think about the socialist conceptualization on a spectrum, ranging from what I think of as, like, the opportunist view to the sort of fatalist view. Um, the opportunist view is, like, history progressives and stuff happens, and then there'll be moments where, you know, the, the, the timing is right to really pursue the, 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 the revolutionary moment, right? And then there's the sort of, I'm increasingly using the word apocalyptic view, and that's something I'm going to try and theorise in a later episode, actually, that, like, the, the internal mechanics of the system are such that it will self-destruct, and almost like a number of religious groups sort of believe that we are living in the end times and a new world is to come, right? So those are other ways. And of course, within the socialist world as well, historically, there's always been um, a sort of spectrum with regards to how inside or outside of existing institutions this so-called revolution is going to happen. So the sort of social democrat view, the Bernie Sanders view, is that this sort of revolution is going to come about through a capture of political systems by contesting them from within, by winning elections and the like. Or or sort of doing stuff that's broadly within the system, like having a protest or a strike or getting people unionised, right? And then, of course, there's the more sort of Rosa Luxemburg-type view, which is these systems cannot be reformed from within, and they just need to be swept away. But just, just, just notice the word I just used there when I was trying to explain that swept away, right? I'm using, and I think a lot of people, and I just did it there, I used those words without really thinking about what they meant. Swept away. That's just something I've picked up from listening to people talk. I've just sort of absorbed by being a human being in the world who uses language, right? Ideologies get in, we don't self-consciously sit down and think what ideology I'm going to have, no. Ideologies get into your brain through the same door that language gets in, right? So by saying swept away, I'm evoking a visualization and and presumably accessing a visualization that exists in my subconscious as change, the progression of political time, as involving quick, decisive comprehensive moments of change, right? This is what I'm driving at here when I say it's almost all subconscious. Finally, then, there's the conservative one. Conservatives are obsessed with change, but it's just a completely different visualization. It's not the mirror opposite of, like, we don't want progress or we don't want revolution. It's something different again. For a conservative, it's about getting back to an underlying order, right? History has a direction in progressive liberalism. History has moments of decisive revolution, decisive sweeping aways in socialism. Human affairs in conservatism are 
ordered and structured. There is an underlying norm or mean or process. And history is a series of mankind attempting to get away from that, failing and then returning to it. So, that obviously could be understood religiously, right? Think about the Old Testament, where God says, I have made a covenant with you, my people of Israel, I have given you these laws, and I I make my pledge to you that if you live by these laws, I will protect you and uh, love you, and you will prosper amongst the nations. Slightly paraphrasing, um, and I'm not actually meaning to, like, mock religion here or anything, I'm just trying to, like, you know, cite the historical narrative, right? And then the people of Israel go worship some other god, or they fall into transgressions and so on, and they bad things happen. They get taken away in slavery, their cities get destroyed, and they repent, and they say, we realize that we strayed from you, God. Will you renew our covenant? And God says, yes, let's get back to the way things are supposed to be, right? Um, and it just is a cycle. It happens again and again and again. And as long as we stay to those underlying norms, we'll be good. But when we transgress from them, um, bad things will inevitably happen. And the job of the conservative is, depending on what where you think you are in that process, to either keep people from transgressing, or if they are transgressing, pull them back towards the correct process. But it doesn't just have to be religious, and in the modern world it often isn't. That fundamental norm could be traditional gender roles. It could be this idea that, you know, men are meant to be a certain way, and women are meant to be a certain way, and they're meant to interact with certain ways. And then the sexual revolution happened, and suddenly sex outside of marriage, and promiscuity in their eyes, and um, all all sorts of non-traditional sexual and gender identities come up, and we see that things are going wrong, we see that people aren't happy in their romantic lives, and our job as conservatives is to get them back into that underlying process, right? Or with economics, that basically the free market is what works, and like any government interference or anything outside of that will sort of produce disaster. So you both want to sort of protect the free markety things that exist, but also reorientate society so it, it returns from its its transgressions, right? So so the, the conservative in their conception is always sort of herding cats. There's a place where the cats are safe and where they'll be protected, but the cats are fucking stupid. They're just cats, right? So they're always wandering off thinking, oh, there might be better mice over there. But the wise conservative knows that the further they stray, the more likely they're to get frozen or trapped or shot. And they're continually bringing those cats back to safety. That was, I think, the single dumbest metaphor I've ever had on this show. Um... I'm keeping it in, I don't care, right? But that's just a very different... We're all subconsciously ascribing a visualisation to time, right? Political and social and economic and historical time, right? And we're largely unaware that we're doing it. And the visualisations that we have that are most common in today's world have left us really ill-equipped to um, live in a state of political and cultural 
and economic decline. The, the events of the world so obviously don't mesh with our visualizations that it leaves a sense of profound disconnect. And I think that's what contributes to this, this feeling of unreality that I've been trying to, to, to theorise in this episode. And by the way, what I'm not trying to get at here is which of those visualisations is sort of quote-unquote correct in some way, or like what the best way to think about it is. That's sort of going to be where I eventually go with the ideologies of the ancient series. Spoiler alert, that's sort of what I'm working towards in 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 that one. Um, and I think there's another factor which makes that disconnect feel all the more unreal and sort of produces this, like, political dream world kind of feeling. And that's that these aren't elements of political ideology that we discuss a lot, either in contemporary political philosophy or in contemporary um, political debate in partisan contestation and so on. And so I said I think a lot of these date back to like the Industrial Revolution and so on, when ideas about how history unfolds and how time develops were much more self-consciously debated among theorists. Like it was an obsession on the sort of socialist Marxist side, it was an obsession on the liberal side, it was an obsession on the, the conservative side. Now while those debates being a central part of our political discourse has gone away, or at least receded to a degree, the types of formulations that they came up with haven't go gone away. They, they just kind of, like I say, drifted through the sediment and have sort of settled in all of our subconsciouses. So we still have them, but we're often not really fully self-consciously aware that we have them. And I think that makes this feeling of unreality more profound and more protracted. Because, because it's subconscious, when the real world is obviously disconfirming it, we don't fully have the resources to go back and say, okay, let me revise my assumptions, maybe, you know, my premises were mistaken, because the premises aren't fully conscious. So it just, we don't have recourse to make sense of that contradiction. And so we're just left with a feeling of contradiction without having the equipment to resolve it. So let's just quickly go through those big three ways of visualizing the, the progress of political time that I talked about, and look at how all of them, in quite different ways, might lead to a sort of contradiction, which in turn would lead to a sort of feeling of unreality. So the most obvious one um, that's sort of being disconfirmed, as it were, would be um, the sort of naive myth of liberal progress. Now, to some degree, people are sort of aware of this. And indeed, if you call yourself a progressive liberal, which I do, one of the sort of first things you'll get back to that is, oh, but things don't always progress, things don't always get better. And 
it's sort of a retort people know. It's an argument against progressive liberalism that people have learned. But I think even to the degree that they've learned it, be it critics of liberalism from the right or the left, they haven't really internalised it. And I think even people who don't call themselves liberals, again and again, um, you can see it through their language, right? They use language which is evocative of time as a linear progression. So again, something like talking about being on the right side of history, something like that. People from across the political spectrum use that, actually. And I think in a number of different domains, um, even people who might not necessarily think of themselves as progressives, either people who might have sort of some conservative inclinations, or conversely, people who might see the progressive vision as too slow and too incrementalist, we're nonetheless hardwired to think that way. So I've been thinking of like social justice. I think we're all quite hardwired to see a sort of increasing toleration and pluralism as sort of the quote-unquote natural bent of history in the, you know, we fight for gay marriage, we get that, uh, employment non-discrimination in the workplace, increasingly um, moving towards sort of uh, being less discriminatory against trans people and so on. It's, it's a series of advances, right? And that even if we might not be a at a place of perfect equality and pluralism yet, we're sort of closer towards that than we were, and we're moving ever forward towards it. And, you know, the, the, the sort of language of, say, the civil rights movement is a long, hard march to justice. It's very evocative of that. Um, social justice movements often couch their struggle in journey metaphors, which again speaks to that underlying visualisation. But in a completely different domain, something like um, economics and technology, we're all um, very, very used to thinking in that way, in that sort of GDP growth is a line on a graph going up, um, wage growth is a line on a graph going up, and when those lines aren't going up, we see it as an aberration. So there's something wrong, quote-unquote, with the economy if the wages of a particular group are flatlining, right? So you'll hear this a lot, that over X time frame, X group of Americans, say manufacturing workers, just for the sake of example, have not seen their wages go up in however long, right? 20 years, 30 years, that sort of... You've heard that sort of statistic before. It gets cited a lot. And what's implicit in that is that there's something wrong with that. Mere stasis is, is conceived of as perverse, such that the, the speaker doesn't even have to say it. They can just assert this group has not seen their wages rise in however long, and they, can, they know the audience will fill in the gaps to go, well, there's something wrong here, right? Because obviously... It's taken for granted that the economy is continually growing, so there's something perverse or wrong or unfair or unjust if a particular group hasn't been part of that. 
But that would be very, that most people who've ever lived would not be able to fill in the gaps that way, because for most people who've ever lived, um, time isn't a linear progression. For the ancients, time is cyclical. Things go up, they go down. It starts where it was, and you go back through the loop again and again, just like there's the cycles of the seasons, or the cycles of day and night, or the cycle of um, biological production, you know, you grow up, um, you reach maturity, you have children, you die eventually, the children grow up, they have children, so on and so forth, right? Or, you know, time is, is, is some sort of part of a great order of being, it's conformity to that. Um, so, so this isn't something natural or inevitable, but it's so hardwired into us that we just know and we know without having to consult some sort of consciously held theory that the, f the fact of status, the fact of mere continuity, is a disturbing anomaly. And likewise, when we look at overall economic growth, when that's negative, when it's going down, that is a disturbing aberration. When, when GDP is contracting, so over session, right, we, that, that is something that has gone wrong that is something outside of how things are sort of quote-unquote supposed to work. And you don't need to be told that. And a political speaker doesn't need to tell you that, right? This is obviously not just something that's bad, like it's, you know, it's, it's not good that we have less money rather than more. It's something a bit deeper than that. It, it's a violation of the expected order of things, right? So... Even though we could all sort of glibly say, oh, you believe in progress, but we don't always get progress, when it actually comes down to how we assess things and how we think about things again, 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 subconsciously, we expect progress. And it's evidence that the, that the ordered way of things, the natural order, has gone wrong in some way or is being violated in some way when we don't get progress. Now, the thing is, the examples I've given are all sort of reconcilable with an overarching myth of progress, in which these are sort of aberrations or detours from an overall journey that's leading towards that. So if a particular set of workers aren't sharing in overall increased prosperity, then the natural implication is there's some sort of remedy that will mean that they can be included within the overall progress that's being made. Likewise with recessions, the sort of conceptualization is that these are things that have gone wrong, but that there are policies that we can put in place that will make them rarer and less severe. This is the whole project of the great moderation that I talked about. And that if we do sort of what we're supposed to be doing, these, they'll sort of eventually just go away. The norm, the expectation, is one of continued progress, and to the extent that something comes along that maybe doesn't quite look like that, that's something that we resolve and work through, and in a sense sort of cure, right? That's the disease. And then what happens, though, if instead of the overall trajectory going up, but then in some specific areas and areas which we can remedy and we have the solution for, you know, it might go down, but, you know, we use those remedies to get it back on track. What about 
if the overall line isn't going up? What about if it's going down? What about if the overall trend line, the overall expectation, isn't positive? And again, I think even people who sort of, at an intellectual level, would reject the myth of progress, on a practical level, find that way disturbing. And I think a similar thing is going on on sort of progress on social justice. This isn't about, you know, policy or, like, rationally held beliefs so much as a subconscious expectation being violated. So I said before, we want to be really careful when we're talking about current American racism to stress that we do not want to be nostalgic about the past, right? Like, however bad our problems are, we would not want to go back to the 1950s. Or certainly we would not want to go back to the 1850s, right? I think it's more like this. It's more like sort of the trend line isn't doing what we expect the trend line to be doing. So, how many times have you heard this story with regards to, to racial justice? How many times have you heard this story? Overt racism, um, you know, when we talk about racism today, we're not talking about cross-burning and, and lynching and Jim Crow. That, by implication, is something that existed in the past. We're talking about more subtle forms of exclusion. We're talking about housing discrimination, we're talking about microaggressions, we're talking about the sort of subconscious biases that well-intentioned white liberals have. How many times have you heard that storyline? I, I must have heard that a million times. Obama was a big sort of proponent of that view of uh, our racial moment. I would say even people sort of on the sort of far social justice left can often invoke a, a sort of similar sort of, of, of story, right? And it just maps to this idea of a line on the graph going up, or like justice as the sort of light at the top of a set of stairs that you're ascending. But, but what if you try and like dig out the conceptualization of time, what's being told? It's that, you know, we've progressed beyond certain forms of injustice, now we're working on, um, you know, the, 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 the more subtle ones that remain, and we're making progress on those, right? And you're going up and up and up and up. And, but if you're climbing a flight of stairs, right, who's ever had this feeling of you walking upstairs in the dark? And I don't know about you, I sort of walk upstairs on autopilot, even in the light. And you put your foot on what you expect to be a step, and it isn't one. And there's that flip in your stomach as your foot goes through what your mind expected to be there. Aren't we kind of, in a huge collective way, living through the civilizational equivalent of that? The expectation is that overt white supremacy has been surpassed, and now more subtle, perhaps 
you know, you can subconscious forms of white supremacy, more structural forms of white supremacy, you know, still remain to be dealt with. What, what if you're not living in that world? What if you're living in a world where the over forms of white supremacy are resurgent? And the stare that you thought was there to climb isn't there. And again, what I'm not saying is that we've suddenly gone back to the 1950s. You know, uh, people who use the word fascist to describe elements of Trump's rhetoric and policy do need to be careful that we're not saying this is the morally consequentialist equivalent of slavery or of the Holocaust or something, right? We do need to put that in perspective. Um, what I think we can say is in some ways, instead of continual progress on, let's just stick with racial justice for now, we might be sort of seeing a flatlining or maybe even um, ground slipping away from us. If you look just, for instance, at racist attitudes over time, you know, the number of white people who held overtly racist views was very, 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 very high, like plus 70, 80%, depending on exactly how you ask the question in the 50s and 60s. It saw some decline in the 70s, 80s, a very, very rapid decline in the 90s. And then it's just kind of like petered out at like 15 to 20% of white America. It's not, and I think most white liberals have it in their head that that line on the graph, the sort of KKK member white supremacy, has, you know, through the 2000s, continued its 90s-like decline, and is just sort of like asymptotal right now, it's just like approximating zero. And the reality is it actually stopped declining quite some time ago, right? It stopped declining sort of about as people my age became teenagers, Maybe a little before that, even, actually. Um, but we've sort of, like, so conditioned to, to, to sort of expect progress, and perhaps just not culturally in touch with people who hold those views, that, that the expectation is it's going to win. Now we're being confronted with the fact that it hasn't. You know what I mean? That step that you thought was there isn't there anymore. And on a sort of simple, practical level, the expectation was that the anti-racism would be would be a matter of like dealing with the more subtle remnants of racism. And it's been so interesting throughout the Trump period how just utterly sort of emotionally and like conceptually unprepared we are. We we white people, I'm saying here. I think perhaps black people didn't fall for this myth as much. Perhaps some did, but um, I'll just, you know, I'll confine my remarks to, to white people here. Um, how unprepared we are to have a political debate, which is about, like, do we want to go back to the 50s? And in which there, there are real political forces pushing that, Right. For forces that the President of the United States feels the need to pander to, or I think more realistically is sympathetic to, right? And there's just been, through the entire Trump era, 
we're willing to believe anything other than the truth. This isn't about overt white supremacy, it's about the fact that people are economically desperate and therefore they latch onto this language. It's not that people really believe this, it's a reaction to a liberal cultural hegemony that makes them feel shut out. Let's really go and explore and try to get at the heart of, like, the rational and by rational sort of read liberal, essentially, reasons why people would support this. And in that attempt at empathy, there's actually an utter failure of empathy. There's a, there's an utter failure to be able to wrap our heads around the idea that people really believe what they say they believe. Now, this isn't every Republican. Like I say, I think there's a sort of group identity. This is our team, and we're going to support our team, and we'll turn a blind eye to some of the more problematic stuff. But like I say, it's, it's about 15 to 20 percent of white Americans who hold overtly bigoted views. So what is that? 35, 40 percent of the Republican electorate? Probably about the, you know, sort of what Trump won the 2016 Republican primary with, something like that, right? And you remember when Trump won in 2016? I've, I've cited this a bit, but I think it's, it's just an underappreciated part of this whole story, is you, you have this thing of, like, people getting upset with, like, the customer service person with whom they're interacting, which happens all the time, um, but putting them sort of quote-unquote in their place with just overtly bigoted language. And, you know, after they'd said the N-word or whatever, they'd say Trump is president now. Well, sort of what did they mean by that? Well, what they meant was there used to be a white supremacist ordering of things, and we we want to return to it, and we expect to return to it, where you can, you know, use slurs against someone, and they 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 cannot challenge you. That's your right as a white person, and that's what people thought they were getting with Trump, right? Or again, if you just read the comments on the the MAGA groups and interact with them, they're very much about immigrants taking over the country. They're very much about criminals and sort of depraved populations, dangerous internal enemies within states. They're very much about globalist conspiracies. And I think there's just been a reluctance, an, an, an almost pathological inability on all parts of the centre, the left, the far left, to just really grapple with the, that is what's going on. Like, people believe what they're telling us that they believe. And I think there's a few things there. It's not just this narrative I'm telling you. I think we naturally assume, naturally is perhaps a bit of a dangerous word, but I think it's very easy to assume that everyone deep down sort of sees the world how we see it, and that everyone sort of starts from similar sorts of premises to us. And that the basic ways we have of conceptualizing the world aren't something that's, you know, unique to our group or our particular 
cultural and historical moment, they're shared and universal. I think that's true of all of us, and I think it's very understandable. I think there's this other story, though, the one I've been working on, which is that we really struggle with the idea that we're making sort of negative progress, that we're now having to return to relitigate the the battles that we thought had been consigned to history. That's not how history works. History has a direction, and it's one of ascent. So we think. But that doesn't seem to be the world that we're living in. Now, I said that's, that isn't the only liberal way of conceptualising progress. Another way of sort of visualising it is of just being in an open-ended space. Um, and I think this has sort of failed us too, but perhaps for slightly more subtle reasons. In that I think some people, well, for one thing, I think, like, people don't just have one way of visualising progress. Um, we sort of absorbed these at a sort of subconscious, implicit level, and we often have several of them. So I think I probably, running in my brain, have both this sort of myth of progress one, the revolutionary one, and this sort of open-ended progressive one, and we sort of bring them out on different occasions, right? But here's sort of where I think the open-ended progress one has got tripped up in our current environment, is that a sort of open-ended conception of change, well, that, that in principle is more able to accommodate living in a time of decline. However, I think nonetheless even people with that tend to think about open-ended progress but spend almost all of their time and attention thinking about the positive directions where we can go from here. And this comes to another sort of central thesis that I want to argue in this, which I kind of can't tell if it's brilliant or obvious or stupid, so you let me know what you think. But I said there's sort of three levels or three layers or three just like domains of how time is fundamental to politics. One is as a source of legitimacy, the other which is a political good, and the other of which is the way we visualise how we, where we go from here, right? And I think this is an area in which the second and the third layers interact. So if you accept the idea that time is a political good, um, and politics distributes units of time in the same way as it distributes economic and symbolic goods, we also give units of time to the political, right? Now, I'm a little bit concerned with this analysis because I'm conceptualising the political as an alien entity abstracted from and sort of ruling over us, as opposed to a relational quality between persons, which is how I prefer to think of it. But let's just go with a more conventional definition of politics, wherein politics is something that sort of happens in governments and powerful organisations that we get stuff from and give stuff to. So the political gives us units of time. You know, you only have to wait this long for citizenship, or we'll cut your prison sentence short, or you, you have so long before you can vote in the next election, right? The, the political distributes and manages time for us. Um, but we also give time to the political. What do we spend our time thinking about? 
do we give a lot of time to politics at all, or are we apathetic towards it? Do we actively take concrete steps like, you know, volunteering for an election campaign or organising for a particular movement? And my thesis is, when we give time, so this is the second level, time as a political good, when we give time, we have a very strong preference to give time towards projects that validate our conception of social change on the third level. Here's concretely what I mean by that. If you have a sort of conception of historical time as a sort of linear upwards progress, when you are giving your time as a political good to a party, an organising effort, or even just like what you spend your time thinking about, you're going to give your time two projects whose justificatory narrative is the same as the one that you find intuitive. So if you do have this um, progress as a sort of linear ascent type idea, you're going to give your time to parties organising ways of thinking that cash out, or at the very least are compatible with, um that underlying conception of how future social time works, which makes sense, right? If you think this is the way we make progress, when you give your time, you're going to give your time to things that look like how you think progress happens, right? Again, all of this is subconscious, or usually subconscious, or largely subconscious. So here's sort of what I think happens, is that I think some people do have a sort of more open-ended conception, but we, we sort of gear towards the progressive within that anyway, right? And so I think when you're involved in, let's just say, social justice activism, I think it's very easy to see what you're working on as like a series of milestones, right? Like, first we fought to get homosexuality decriminalised, and we won, we got it, we reached that milestone. Then we fought for marriage equality, and we won, we got it, we reached that milestone. Then for employment discrimination, then for um, trans rights and so on. And once you reach a milestone, the sort of natural thing to do is to think ahead to the next milestone. So... When you're thinking, you know, how do I want to give this time? Your sort of implicit natural bias is to go for that next milestone. In other words, like something that validates this sort of progressive, albeit open-ended idea. But that's not the only thing that you could give your time to. Just staying within the domain of gay rights. Say marriage equality happens in the Obama presidency, right? Now, everyone, not everyone actually, this was interesting. A lot of people's reaction was, what's next, right? What's the next milestone? And almost in like activism and fundraising, we're thinking, Christ, we don't want people to tune out. We need to give them another milestone to shoot for. What's our next target? But that only isn't, that isn't the only thing you could have given time as a sort of, you know, good that you have, that isn't the only thing you could have devoted that good to. You could have devoted it to sort of shoring up and ensuring that that victory 
was long-lasting and stable, you could have shored it up to sort of defensive strategies in other areas. So there's, there's a really interesting column by Ross Douthat, the conservative New York Times uh, columnist, um, who was against gay marriage, or at least I think he was. Um, and when it passed, he said, it looks like the battle is now lost. And what remains to be settled is what are the terms that the victors will impose on us. And I think Obama had a sort of similar feeling there. And I think the Supreme Court has had a similar feeling there, is that the sort of project of, um, how would you describe it, religious liberty, as they call it, versus sort of increasing toleration, is one of navigating the contours of that so that sort of everyone can sort of live and get on together, and the gains will be protected, but people who don't want it to go any further will also be able to carve their space out. Well, for one thing, I think that's just a sort of policy equilibrium, which a lot of people might just reject on its own terms. A lot of people might think, well, you know, not going further is to sort of leave injustice in the world, which we're not comfortable with. I, I sympathise with that view. Um, but another reason I think people just sort of weren't geared towards that, I don't think even really sometimes thought to ask the question, is we're just very, very geared, like I say, to go towards the progressive side, justice as a sort of linear ascent, uh, a, a sort of view of what you're doing as like a series of milestones along the way. And, and, and like I say, when we give time as a sort of political good, um, we tend to do so in a way that's, that has a congruence between the second and third levels. So when we're giving time, second level, we do it towards things that validate our conception of how social time works, which again makes sense, right? But so strong is that tendency that it often doesn't even occur to us to give time in ways that sort of don't. And I think, like, you know, to the to the open-ended idea of progress, progress is sort of charting new ground, right? That's the visual metaphor. So it's quite alien to give time to, to a defending the ground that you already have, much less to a sort of fighting retreat in which we know things are going to get progressively worse and we merely want to slow that decline. I think to liberals across the spectrum, that is really, really, really counterintuitive. And it means that not only is there a sort of conceptual error, but if we are indeed living in a time of decline, then there's a strategic error in that we might be putting um, our, our time as a resource into the projects where they won't do the most good. And the projects where they might do the most good might be a sort of fighting retreat. Now, I can hear a sort of counterattack to that, which is, it's all very well for you to say that as a straight white guy, Toby, 
What about the people, you know, who are not on the conquered ground and are still suffering injustice? Are you saying that we write them all off? No, um, I'm just trying to explain how I think people think on a subconscious level. There isn't really a normative component to this. Um, like I say, when I end ideologies of the ancients, I'm going to end with a sort of point of view of how I think we ought to think about this. This is more just an analysis of, I think, how we do think about this. So, what, so all I'm really saying here is regardless of what the correct strategy actually is, and whether we assess that in sort of utilitarian or deantic or virtue ethicist ways, um, I think this is the way that we do, as a matter of reality, approach it. That's all I'm claiming in this one. Um, so whether it's right or wrong that we have this particular bias, I think that is the bias, right? Um, and again, I think that makes the world profoundly counterintuitive, right? When we're so used to putting our time and energy into thing A, i.e. the next milestone, the next checkmark of progress, and then suddenly the actual political fight is one where we suddenly are having to go back and defend not just the last milestone, but the one before that, and the one before that, and, the, and they're all under attack. All of the sort of check marks along the way can no longer be taken for granted. And I think there's, there's, the, the, the reaction is to sort of say, but this isn't happening. Something else is happening. It's not really... Um, a project of Christian white supremacist nationalism on the other side. It's something else. Their concerns are actually, to use a word that liberals put a lot into, their concerns are actually reasonable. Well, in a sense, they are. I mean, they, they have goals and they're pursuing their goals, but that's not quite what liberals mean by reasonable. They mean kind of a thin liberal, basically, right? And so... I think for all those reasons, if, we, if, and this is a big if, and I've been agnostic about it the whole time, if we are entering a time of decline, and I'm personally agnostic about that, but if we are, that time of decline is going to feel very, very weird and unreal for a lot of people. And if, like I say, and my belief is, that a lot of these sorts of frameworks we have are running at a subconscious level. We're not really going to have the mechanisms to think our way out of it. We're just going to be left in a state of unreality, a dream from which we, we can't awake. Um, to which I can hear sort of conservative and sort of radical listeners perhaps saying, yeah, well, we could have told you all that, and this is why liberalism is naff, and here's the bad news. I actually think, for everything I've just ran through, liberalism is actually the best placed of the main ideologies to make sense of the world in which we're living. I think that there's a, an equivalent process, different but parallel. Um, let's do socialism next, that, that, that's happening there. So I said there's kind of like two... Um, ways, visualizations, socialists, radicals, however you want to think about it, have of this. Or maybe it's even just more of a sort of spectrum, and these are like the end points. And they loosely, but perhaps 
not exactly match with the sort of like revolutionary versus evolutionary socialism thing. Although I think this is more different. It's not like about what you're trying to achieve. It's more just like how you're visualizing it. So on the one hand, we have sort of the end is imminent crowd. Um, and I'm going to try and theorize this in more detail on another episode or perhaps a written piece at some point. But very briefly, the idea that we are sort of in the political end times the system as it exists is unsustainable, and something new is coming. You know, on the other, you could have a sort of more moderate opportunist view, which is history progresses, and there's sort of opportunities for revolution present themselves throughout history, right? Or that maybe if you work hard enough and organise enough, you can kind of, like, create, engineer a revolutionary moment. And like I say, I think this is more of a spectrum, and you can sort of imagine middle positions between the two, right? But let's just take the hardline position at its most hardline, which is that, you know, we are in the political end times, and the sort of system of neoliberal global capitalism is collapsing under its own weight, and people are seething with resentment against it and ready for the next thing. And um, let's just say we're declining, and we're declining not just like, quote, the system of, um, you know, capitalism is declining, because some socialists might see that as a good thing, or even that the, um, our attitudes towards, you know, racial justice or something are declining, because that might not be what the socialist is primarily concerned by, um, I'm not saying socialists aren't concerned by that, but like maybe their main thing is like economic justice. So they view justice as a more equal society, a dismantling of the power structures that are inherent within a capitalist order, right? Um, so that's sort of a good progress for them. Now, what it might be is that we're declining on that front as well, right? That actually our society is becoming more unequal um, the sort of systems of domination that are inherent within capitalism are becoming more extreme and more dyadic, right? I, again, let's just, just grant me my premise that we are in a stage of sort of all fronts decline. Um, I think the socialist, the hardcore one, is really ill-equipped as well to handle that, because if, if your thesis is that a revolutionary moment is coming, then decline, even decline in terms of the variables that you are concerned by, is a good thing, right? It means it means the revolution's coming. It, it's the, the sort of silver lining in a mushroom cloud, right? And wasn't this just the reaction of certain parts of, like, the Corbyn left and the Sanders left to Trump winning? You'd... You'd have thought they'd be devastated by it, but they actually kind of saw it as a good thing. This shows that the end is near, right? And I think, like, at least short-run history has pretty much made a mockery of that. Whatever anyone thought the revolution looked like, and sometimes socialists don't give us a particularly clear picture of what they think the revolution is going to look like, but whatever you thought it was going to look like... <laughs> It wasn't a Biden presidency, was it? I don't, I don't think it was, right? Um, and this goes to my central point, that 
if your if your conception of change is is that we are like on the edge of the waterfall, and again, I did not know I was going to pull that visual metaphor out of my head until I did. I was just searching for a way to say it, and it came. On the edge of the waterfall, it's how we visualize time, right? So there's something in my head that lets me know there's a decisive rupture that's imminent. And I could pull that metaphor out to explain it, right? Without really accessing the software that's running in my brain directly. I can't go directly into the code. I just get these visual metaphors coming out of it, right? But if we are at the edge of the waterfall, this is a good thing. We need to row over faster. Whereas actually, maybe, I think this probably is the reality, is it's just much more mundane in that societies exist on a spectrum from you know, more egalitarian and more socially democratic to more unequal and more governed by arbitrary and unaccountable power. And what's happened is we've just moved along that spectrum a bit in the wrong direction. That's it. The, the fact that we moved along a bit doesn't mean that we're suddenly going to snap back, right? Just as we're not going to snap back like the people who think Obama was born in Kenya, the fever's not going to break. It's just, you know, we're slowly making negative progress. Again, on the sort of economic justice front, it's not going to reach, it's not going to circle around and suddenly, you know, we end up at full communism after passing through a brief phase of fascism. That's never how it's been historically. No, we've just got a bit worse. And I think the socialist on reality, and their feeling that, that this is like a dream world, is there's an extra step, but it ends in the same place, right? And the extra step is, oh, it's coming, right? <laughs> this is it. This is the moment we're going over the waterfall, and at the bottom there'll be this beautiful, tranquil, social democratic lake that we end up in. But but the reality is you're just slowly sliding down a hill, right? And each bit more that you slide down, the further away you get from the summit that you want to reach. And it's both a strategic failure, in that the sort of thought is somehow maybe if we slide further down the hill, we'll be closer to the summit. And someone like me says to you, you don't you realise, don't you, you're just sliding down further down the hill. And you say, don't, don't be ridiculous, this, this slide down is what's actually going to get us to the top. Don't you believe in the revolution? And I'm like, but what revolution, right? Um, so there's, there's sort of a strategic failing, but again, this isn't a normative piece. I'm not like going into the ethics of revolution here. Um, but let's just, again, grant my premise. Like, you don't have to agree with me, but just say that I'm right, and that actually you are just sliding further down the hill. The society, as a result of Trump, has become more unequal, um, the sort of systems of domination inherent within capitalism have been reinforced, and potential opportunities to change them in the future have been undermined. For instance, a Federalist Society supermajority on the Supreme Court, our voting systems through the census and gerrymandering and so on, all the more stacked against the left as a whole and progressives within that, we're just further down the hill. Doesn't mean we can't climb back up again. We can, but 
it didn't come of that. So the, 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 the sort of hardcore revolutionary socialist is left with the disconnect of this was supposed to be the revolution and it wasn't. And I think the, the sort of, we're hitting an intellectual dead end there because now you just get into like failed prophet syndrome. You said Jesus was coming back on this day and he didn't come back on this day. You're in that sort of space, right? And what happens, I mean, just to take the religious example, what happens with, with sort of failed prophets is they don't quite give up on the prophecy. The prophecy just gets pushed back over an ever-receding time horizon. But you sort of get to this finger-pointing, right? Well, Jesus would have come back, but y'all were sinning too much, and, and he, he just took one look at how sinful you all are, and he decided it's going to be another hundred years. So you, you really only have yourselves to blame. It's not my fault, it's the prophet, right? I think that's sort of where we've ended up now. When you, when you look at this fight we have over, like, did AOC, for God's sake, sell out the Jimmy Dore thing? And by the way, I hated Jimmy Dore before it was cool to hate Jimmy Dore. But you're kind of in this, like, failed prophet area, right? But again, and you can get back to his, what finger-wagging is justified if we really had have done X, Y, Z. Could there have been a revolutionary moment? I'm just going to sort of leave all those open-ended right now. All I'm saying is there's a cognitive disconnect, right? In that your conception of change told you that these bad things were actually the sort of gateway to good things. And they, they've been gateways to, like, whatever this is, you know? Um, and it's just like the world isn't conforming to your subconscious visualizations of how you think time progresses. Time's doing its own thing, right? But because these are often largely subconscious, it's hard to dig it out and to go, okay, sort of, was I getting something wrong here? Now, that's the sort of real extreme position. But I think there's sort of something going on with the sort of more quote-unquote I don't know, less extreme position. I was going to say moderate, but that's the wrong word. Which is the sort of revolutionary moments sort of occur and are exploitable and to some degree are, like, engineerable. I think that's more how most people on this side see it. They're not, like, pure determinists. They don't think it's, like, absolutely preordained or anything like that. And I will say, in the interests of charity... I don't think that that way of conceptualizing things is obviously wrong. Now, I'll sometimes, you know, quibble when I get into details of, of it with people. But, you know, there are revolutionary moments in history. Um, there are decisive changes in the ordering of things. And to some degree, they're planned. To some degree, they're unplanned. And to some degree, especially when we go back far enough in history, um, it, it's unclear what caused them. Even in modern history, um, it can often be unclear what brought about big systemic changes. So I, I don't think that's a horrible paradigm in general, but I, th I think it runs into trouble... Or, or it produces a feeling of incongruity for a similar sort of reason to the sort of open-ended liberal conception of progress. There's this idea 
that we want to be giving our time as a political good to activities that conform to our conception of how future social progress will be taking place. Let, let me try and concretize that a bit. And the best analogy I've sort of got for this, I am stealing from a conservative thinker, actually, uh, James Kurth. Now, he uses a religious metaphor, and again, I'm not really taking sides in any religious dispute in this one, um, but I think the metaphor makes sense in that he's a Protestant, right? And he sort of says, you know, maybe the contemporary United States constitutional political order is a little bit like the Catholic Church a century before the Reformation, in that there's a general sense that this institution isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. There's a general sense that perhaps it's failing even by its own stated goals, but also that this institution clearly lacks the mechanisms for some sort of internal reform. And that there is a sort of moment of reckoning coming at some point, but it's not as if just suddenly one day Luther gets up and nails his 92 theses to the door, and then you get the Reformation and the, the terrible religious wars that followed and a, a, a sort of restructuring of Christianity in Europe, right? There were a lot of antecedents to Luther. Uh, Savonarola in Florence was making very similar um, criticisms of the papacy sometime before he was burnt. Uh, Czech Protestant Jan Hus was, was making similar criticisms and he was burnt, right? And so it weren't as if these ideas were out there, but they weren't ideas whose time had come. They either hadn't really got the solid buy-in of the majority of the population, even if the majority of the population shared a general sense that something was going wrong, nor had they really got the buy-in of elites. Either they hadn't genuinely converted elites, or they hadn't yet shown to elites that these ideas could be advantageous for them if they adopted them as their own. So does something like a total rethinking of the constitutional and political and economic order of the contemporary United States fall into that. I sort of think it does. Or, I'll be more cautious, at the very least, it's not a crazy perspective to hold that the current economic system isn't delivering the goods for a lot of people, maybe even most people, most of the time that people aren't feeling included, people don't feel in control of their lives, they don't feel like their contribution to society is um, being properly comp compensated. At the same time, there's a sort of general sense that our political system isn't working. I think almost any politician of any stripe running for office can say something like, Washington is broken, and that will be completely intuitive to their audience. We all sort of know 
that the political system isn't working. So are we in a Lutheran moment, or sort of the secular equivalent of a Lutheran moment? I, I'm much more sceptical of that. And I think it's much more likely that we're in a sort of Savannah Roller moment, where there is a sort of general discontent, but a particular idea for what comes next, that time hasn't come. There are particular people out there advocating for some sort of constitutional reform, something that would make our government capable of just even ordinary legislation again, right? Um, but those ideas, have, their time has not yet come. The idea of, like, streamlining our constitutional system, say, to make it more like a parliamentary system, there are people out there advocating for that, but it, it hasn't yet caught fire with the general public, nor has it caught fire with political elites. Like Protestantism, either they have not become convinced of it themselves, or they're yet to see how that idea could be useful for them. But this then goes to my point. So very simply, you know, are we in a Savannah Roller type moment or in a Lutheran moment? Now, I think the subconscious constructions and visualizations that most sort of socialists and radicals bring to the table are always going to steer them towards thinking that we're in a Lutheran moment, that the big decisive moment for change has come, rather than us just being on like a steady sort of decline and, you know, maybe somewhere down that hill comes the decisive break, but we're nowhere near it yet. Because again, we want to give our time as a political good to things that match up with our underlying narrative about time. And it's, I think, entirely understandable that that's, that, that that's the case. And so socialists, when they give their time, they want to give their time to the secular equivalent of the Lutheran moment. They want to work for the revolution and projects that um, justify themselves and market themselves you know, Bernie Sanders is a good example. I don't mean this is a bad thing necessarily, but projects that mark themselves as revolutionary are going to be ones that people who have this underlying conception of time want to give their time to, right? And so there's always going to be this bias of like feeling like, like this is the Lutheran moment and that the person we get behind is a Luther not a Savannah roller. Not that we're going to burn Bernie at the stake, of course, but we're going to sort of politically sideline him, perhaps. You know? Perhaps it's the modern equivalent. <laughs> Something like that. Maybe I'm stretching this analogy a bit too far. But I think so overwhelming is that tendency to want to be giving our time to, to the bit that, that really animates us and is exciting and important you know, we want to be in the bit of history where fancy stuff happens and, like, we can really be the, the, the heroes of the story, right? We don't want to be in the bit of history that's sort of the antecedent that everybody forgets about, but maybe we are, right? But, like, so strong is that that I think a lot of socialists and radicals 
really struggle to answer the question of how should you give your time to political projects if you are in a savannah roller moment? What if there, well, let's just say, you know, we can look into the crystal ball and say we sort of know what's coming. And in about 150 years, there will be a genuine rupture, a genuine Lutheran moment in the American sort of constitutional political economic system. But it's quite a few generations away. We won't be alive to see it, right? So organizing from an Im- for an imminent revolution is just going to be not the most effective use of your time. Well, then, if you do have time to give to make the world better, how do you give it? And I think so strong is that urge that not only do sort of socialists and radicals answer that question reluctantly, they, they often really struggle to answer it at all. So I've posed that question to people, and what I get back is a kind of like, I refuse to accept the question. At its best, they'll say, we need to do the organising and the groundwork now, so that when the revolution comes, we're ready. And I say, no, no, I'm not saying the revolution's coming in five or ten years. I'm saying it's coming in 150, 250. I'm saying this isn't late-stage capitalism. This is actually early or middle capitalism. We've got our children and their children, their children, to go before we get to what you're talking about. How do you spend your time and energy and just sort of thinking power in in, in that meantime? What do you do if you're a Protestant in the age of Savannah, or sort of proto-Protestant, or someone who's uneasy with the overall direction of the Catholic Church? And I do find it interesting that that's a question that can quite often stump people. Because the answer is obvious. The, the answer is you do good works, right? If you're not going to achieve a total change of the Catholic Church, you sort of quietly practice your faith as best as you can. And if you think the Catholic Church isn't helping the poor enough, go help the poor. The impact of that will be quite small compared to a total systemic change, but maybe we're not living in an age where there will be a total systemic change. Most people in human history have not lived in a time of total systemic change. So from a purely statistical perspective, the odds are that we are living in a more muted and more mundane time. By analogy, if what you care about is an utter transformation of the American healthcare system, well, what do you do when that's not on the cards? The answer would be help people get healthcare, donate to charities, join organising projects that do good works in the meantime. I'll give you an example just from my own personal perspective, so I don't sound too critical, is I've been very interested in and very invested in the idea of constitutional reform in America. And just for a moment, it looked like there might have been a window to that. Perhaps there was, and it was just a very narrow window and we missed it. Or perhaps there never was, and I don't know. Um, Where Democrats had a really wave year, and a lot of the, honestly, in my view, quite moderate reforms about expanding the court or ending the filibuster or doing something to increase representation in the Senate and the House would actually be on the table. I don't know yet whether that was a very, very narrow window that we missed, or it was just never there to begin with. 
And what's weird is even though I knew at best it was a very, very narrow window, I spent a disproportionate amount of my time, I gave my time as a good to talking and thinking about on the podcast that sort of reform. I didn't spend so much time thinking about, even though I knew and I said publicly it was the most likely possibility, that we sort of continue under divided government where no one can really do anything. What do we do then? And the answer's obvious, but like, it didn't occur to me, if I care about people having access to voting, go register people to vote. The, you know, do the Stacey Abrams thing. And honestly, if I'm being honest, Stacey Abrams almost certainly did more good in the world than a million people about me, like me, crying on about structural changes whose time had not yet come. So that's just an example for myself of how, even though rationally I knew better, I still was giving my time as a sort of good to some sort of project that validated my underlying conceptions. And I think it's something we really, really struggle with. Um, we, we, we so want to give our time as a good to something that, that meets our validation, our, our ideal of how time should be progressing, um, that it can be counterintuitive to us to even have to think at all, how do we spend our time when that isn't how time is actually progressing? Where perhaps we're just on a course of steady decline or stasis or something like that, right? And so I think, not only do both of the liberal conceptions that I talked about sort of produce this feeling of unreality, but both of the sort of revolutionary or socialisty ones also exist in a weird tension with the reality in which we're living. And like I say, people can often hold more than one at the same time and sort of use them on different occasions. But whichever one you're holding, it sits very, very, very uneasily with what we're seeing on our social media feeds or on the news or whatever, right? Finally, what about the sort of final conceptualization or visualization of social time that I mentioned, conservatism? Well, here's the thing. In principle, conservatism is most able to make sense of living in a time of decline. It's most able to process that in a way that's intuitive. This, by the way, is one of the reasons I've always been a bit sceptical, or very sceptical, actually, of like accelerationism, the idea that we sort of need to go through a stage of fascism on the way to a true utopian socialism. Because when things are really bad, the ideology that really comes online is often conservatism. And destabilizing periods are often followed by long periods of conservative ascendancy. And I think the reason for that, when you're looking at it through this point of view, isn't that hard to grasp. Because to the conservative, 
history is neither sharp breaks or an upward ascension. It's a series of deviations from an underlying norm. The harm that follows those deviations, followed by a return to that norm. So when conservatives see something going wrong, it's usually quite easy for them to, to, to come up with an answer as to why. And an answer that's intuitive and makes sense with their sort of underlying conceptions. That's not to say that answer's right, but it's, it's a much easier jump for them. So, for instance, if we are seeing certain sorts of social pathologies in terms of, say, increasing violence or social breakdown or drug use, it's very easy for the conservative to say, ah, see, I told you higher divorce rates or single motherhood or sexual promiscuity, I told you this was all going to lead to that. I told you once we went outside the sort of safe little circle of human behaviour that conforms to this extra human social order, I told you once we did that, we'd get bad results, and now we have. And so now we have a fix. We need to start returning to that sort of, that, that circle, right? Or, say, the economy's crashing. I told you all that government interference was going to end badly, didn't I tell you? Now the answer's obvious. We've got to go back to the free market and hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And if we do that, then we'll get back on course. And those answers are easy and intuitive. For it doesn't matter that they're wrong, but that they're easy and they're intuitive for a conservative, right? Something like that is the sort of story of the 70s and the Thatcher and Reagan revolutions, right? It makes sense in a way. It doesn't matter if it's not, it's not true. It's intuitive, right? We were doing fine when we had traditional market, traditional families and a free market system and strong money and a hard work ethic. And once we let that go, chaos has followed. And let's get back to what we know works. Now, forget that the empirical claims in that story are not substantiated. It makes sense as a story, right? And you can see why people, I mean, I don't know, some people really can't. I can see why people would buy into it. Um, it's just, it's empirically false in a way that other ideologies aren't. But that's a whole other story. But actually, conservatism... Is, is it a weird intellectual dead end, too? There's nothing really that I find that interesting being said by conservative these days. And you might say, well, that's just my left-wing bias, but I don't think it is. Um, there's no real good political thought coming from that side of the aisle at all, as far as I can tell. Maybe sort of vague rehashing of a sort of Randian libertarianism or something like that. Sort of people who believe themselves to be intellectuals, proposing some kind of um, state centred on religious values, but I don't think that's an idea that's like caught wildfire with the population, or elites for that matter. There may be a few people who try to sort of construct an intellectual version of Trumpism, but... I mean, that was always going to be a bit of a steep hill to climb, right? Um, 
I think conservatives have a similar sense of disreality, of like unreality. And why? Well, because so obviously what's going wrong in our society is not coming from outside of the circle of safe prescribed behaviour as conservatives see it. It's coming from within it. So it's not that the cats have strayed from the circle and now they're getting trapped and caught and frozen. It's the cats within the circle are dying. And conservatism is really ill-equipped to handle that. Here's what I mean by that. It is not the case that our constitutional order, which is something sort of a conservative would see as probably inside the circle, right, at least in the US, it is not the case that our constitutional order is under threat from a communist insurgency or even sort of reformist progressive liberals. There is no communist insurgency and reformist progressive liberals, at least sort of on the party political level, usually want to reform within the existing constitutional order. No, the primary threat to our constitutional order, which, you know, you have to admit this, is just so obviously true, is coming from the party of free markets and traditional family values. The danger is coming from within the circle. And, and, and likewise, when we talk about social decline and you know, social pathologies, the victims that conservatives really want to call our attention to are people who have been living our lives as the conservative would have told them that they should. So conservatives often want to, and I don't think incorrectly actually, want to bring our attention to um, the opioid epidemic, to deaths of despair, to um, to the fact that like young men are increasingly like alienated, should we say? Um, I don't think these are crazy problems to to think about, but the fact is, they, they are disproportionately red state problems. But that's not to sort of say ha ha they deserve it or anything like that. What I'm saying is the conservative is left with a bit of a contradiction, because the conservative wants to say it's sort of because of an overarching social liberalism that families are breaking down, that people don't feel hope, that they don't have a common project, a nationalism, a sense of collective purpose that they can invest in. They don't have a religious identity, but it's, it's actually the people who are ideologically quite right-wing who are experiencing really significant rates of social malaise, I guess. Um, there's, there's an interesting exchange on a podcast I listened to called The Argument um, between Ross Douthat, who's a sort of social conservative, and Michelle Goldberg, who's sort of a progressive liberal. And Ross started telling this very traditional story about how sort of East Coast progressive elites have sort of, through popular culture, I guess, if not the political system, brought about a sort of new social set of mores that's individualistic, it's anti-nationalistic, it's sort of sexually permissive, um, 
and that this is actually doing a lot of damage to the country in terms of like marriage and divorce rates, child rearing, a sense of community, and that that's sort of what's leading to like these deaths of despair and like the opioid epidemic and all of that. So regardless if you think that's true or not, that's a sort of very traditional conservative story. You can see the underlying sort of conception of social change that I've been describing at work there. And what Michelle said is she said, well, you know, there's, there's problems with that narrative, but let's just say it's true. You know, me and my sort of middle-class progressive friends in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, who, you know, do sort of are suspicious of nationalism, who don't think that everything has to revolve around a traditional family. We're not seeing this sort of breakdown. Our marriages are lasting. Our children are doing well. Um, We're not seeing, like, you know, increased rates of drug use within the sort of liberal coastal elite. In fact, the, 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 the people who are seeing the problems you talk about are the people who are living their lives in a way that you, you're telling me should lead them to be able to avoid this. So doesn't it sound a bit weird when you have different sections of America living different ways and you're telling me the very obvious and very real problems in the most conservative parts of America are actually somehow the fault of the most liberal parts of America, even though the two communities interact almost not at all. That is a fair question, and I don't think Ross had a very good answer for it. I think his answer was sort of like, yeah, but like, it's still all the fault of a cultural liberalism somehow. That's just not a compelling answer. Like, and I think conservatives have got a bit stuck. When something's going wrong outside the circle, they have their answer locked and loaded and ready to go. It takes a much more self-reflective type of conservatism that I just don't really see existing today. I see conservatism at varying levels of intellectual sophistication. So, you know, anything from your sort of MAGA troll online all the way up to someone who can really quote Madison and the nuances of the constitutional system. I see it at varying levels of intellectual sophistication. I don't see it ever as particularly self-aware. So what I mean by that is I think the only real response for conservatives is to say, okay, if something's going wrong within the circle, then clearly we drew the circle wrong, or we conceptualised it wrong, or maybe something's changed about the world wherein the circle needs to be somewhere else. That I haven't seen. I think there's past generations of conservatives who would have been capable of that sort of um, intellectual flexibility and openness. It's not even openness, willingness. You've got to be willing to sort of look behind your eyes a little bit in a way not a lot of people can do, honestly. And conservatives haven't been willing to see that. And this is typified by Trump. 
right? In that Trump is so obviously a threat to things that are inside the circle. He's clearly a threat to the constitutional order, right? He's clearly a threat to social stability. He's clearly a threat to a sense of national unity. But then what can you really say? Because Trump comes from within the circle, right? His base is people who believe in stuff that is within the circle. So what can you say? You're kind of left with two options, both of which I think are intellectually sterile. One of which is to say, Trump isn't really coming from within the circle. He's not really a conservative. He's some sort of aberration. And that, that like, getting rid of... This is a sort of, like, Lincoln Project, anti-never-Trump position type of thing, right? Trump is actually sort of a liberal somehow. He's actually some sort of, like, force that's leading away us away from the underlying social order which we know is good and proper. Now, there's always just such a huge gap in that story, in that, like, well, where did Trump come from? He didn't come from the left, or even the centre. Where did Trump come from? He came from the right. And I think the, the only sort of response there to say is there's something wrong with the right. And sort of a little bit of this work has been done. So, like, David French, who's a sort of conservative Christian pro-life type of person who, who, to his credit, has been quite anti-Trump. He sort of has a bit of interesting stuff where he says the reason liberal America hates evangelical Christians right now is not because we're anti-gay rights or anti-abortion. That might have been the case in the Bush era. Now they hate us because we are tied to the project of Trumpism we're one of its main blocks of support, and that a lot of our political motivation and political speech isn't directed around things rooted in our faith. It's directed around things like opposition to immigration. And that people hate and fear that section of the population, not because they have any particular feelings one way or the other on their Christianity, actually, but because they're attached to a political project which is a threat to them. That's all true, as far as I can see. That's, and, and, you know, A plus to David French there, by the way, for at least saying it of his own side. But when I sort of, if I was to sort of say, okay, so what, what's next? What needs to change? I'm not sure he has a brilliant answer, other than maybe just the evangelicals shouldn't vote for Trump, which I guess... Sure. But you know what I mean? There's no there's no rich intellectual project there of what positive change going forward looks like. He's a, he's to his credit at least able to note the contradiction, which most on the right aren't. And I just think that's quite true of the anti-Trump right. They're unable to tell a compelling story of how we got to this point. Now, the other way of dealing with it which I think is probably true for a far larger number of people, is to just double down. And No, there is nothing wrong inside of the circle. And to the extent that there are these anti-Trump Republicans, they've just shown themselves to be outside of the circle. And so great are the threats to us from outside of the circle that Trump and his excesses are 
justified. So great are the dangers of a secular liberalism that wants to outlaw Christianity, or of increasing racial diversity that will make white people the new oppressed minority, and is indeed already doing so. So great are these nefarious globalist powers taking over America and our freedom, that we need our own tough guy, and we need someone who will burn down the house in order to save it. And I don't doubt, for a minute, that that belief is sincerely held by many tens of millions of Americans. I don't doubt that it's real, but it's still intellectually sterile, and it doesn't make any sense, right? The threats to the circle are so great that it is worth destroying the circle to save it. Now, the, the fact that it's a, a contradiction doesn't mean that people people are capable of believing wildly contradictory things. We all do it all the time. But it doesn't exactly... It's not a firm ground to try and build a philosophy of what a, a positive short-to-medium run looks like. It's purely reactionary. And again, that doesn't mean that people don't believe it. But it is at odds with the world, and very much at odds. And the people who hold it do seem to have to sort of develop these, like, coping strategies for holding it. What they want to do is never defend it on its own terms. So Josh Hawley, who's just said he'll challenge the results when Congress votes, doesn't justify it by saying, here's why it's the right thing to do. He said that, you know, here are these instances historically of liberals having to do the same thing. Therefore, it's justified. Well, that's not really an argument, is it? Or, or th this argument, this is metaphor, sorry, you get from the Christian right, that Trump is our Cyrus. So like Cyrus, a non-Jew who saves the Jews from captivity. By analogy, Trump, a sort of non-Christian, is the one who saves the Christians from captivity. He's the one who's going to return us to the promised land. And regardless of how historically apt that metaphor is, it's, it's not, um, you, you just do sort of get the overwhelming sense of people grappling with a contradiction there, right? And so I think, for a variety of reasons, all of the main sort of ideological ways we have of conceptualizing the passage of social and political time are actually leaving us with a sense of unreality right now. And I, I, I don't see that going away. One of two things is going to have to change. Either we get out of this sort of period of decline, and maybe we will. Look, we've got the COVID vaccine now. It won't be immediate, but maybe that, that hopefully is actually going to start to get better. Hopefully I'm wrong about the trajectory of um, our political system. Hopefully I'm wrong about the trajectory of our economic systems, our levels of social trust. And hopefully COVID is the last big crisis we have to deal with of our generation. But then I just think, well, that's a hope. It's, it's not a plan. And maybe there would, I mean, 
a lot of people when COVID started talked about it as like a dry run for global warming. And if you think about it that way, then we're in real trouble, aren't we? So I don't know. I don't know what's coming down the line. Or our ideologies are going to have to change and adapt. And that's more sort of what I think is going to happen. So, in other words, you know, am I saying that because these processes are largely subconscious, we're sort of stuck with them forever? Um, No, no. um, Ideologies change and adapt all of the time. Now, they change and adapt often quite slowly, and even when they radically change political sort of policies that they support, the underlying conceptualizations change quite slowly. But by analogy, if you think about something like evolution through natural selection, that's quite a slow, gradual change. And sometimes there'll be moments where, like, changes in the physical environment are so great that evolution really just can't keep up and some species go extinct and others have to change and evolve quite drastically. But life goes on, but in a different form, right? So so maybe that's where we are. If we are in a real time of decline here and it is going to continue to get much worse, um, I don't think political thinking goes away, but it does mean we're going to need... To, to, to take a much broader view of sort of what's possible. Like, maybe some of our traditions of political thinking will die out or become endangered. Maybe new ways of thinking will emerge. Political thinking will continue. But it, it, it might be in another generation where we're in a sort of mental landscape that would be quite unrecognisable to us now. I think that's quite possible, actually. Even if our institutional landscape has only decayed, it hasn't, you know, hasn't been transformed into something positive or hasn't conformed to anyone's idea of how social time should progress. And in closing, if that is the place that we're at, then that is nothing new. The the mental thought behaviours, the visualisations of the world that we hold are so radically different to what people held in past ages that it's basically impossible for us to get inside their heads, just as it would be impossible for them to get inside of ours. There are stable periods in terms of political thinking. Well, yeah, the ideas change and they're debated and so on, but these sort of big underlying conceptualizations and visualizations are sort of steady over time. But that stability is always fleeting and transitory. Again, just like evolution, evolution doesn't just stop, it goes through phases where a certain evolutionary adaptation can persist over long runs, and then it goes through changes, periods of change, and renewal, and extinction events, right? I mean, it's a loose analogy, but political thinking is no different. 
the basic categories and concepts that we have of the world change all the time. And that change is partly something that is within our control. The, 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 the basics of conscious visualizations we have were to some degree designed, and we can design new ones if they're no longer up to the task. Now, that doesn't make it easy. And I don't mean to be too flippant about this. I don't want you to take away from this I'm essentially saying get over it. There's been an immense amount of suffering this year. And I sort of almost was going to close by some sort of like privileged statement of saying I've been comparatively lucky, but I know other people have suffered. And actually, I thought about it for a minute, and I'm not even sure that's true. This has been a really weird year for me personally, and I'm not going to go into stuff involving my family and so on, but, you know, I've certainly been directly affected by a lot of the issues that I've talked about here. I'm sure others have had it much worse, um, and I'm not, like, going to wallow in self-pity or anything, but this has been a strange time to live through in terms of, like, the harms people have suffered, and more generally than that, when I think about, you know, when I talk about the way that we think is going to change, now, that's always true. The way we think is always going to change. But normally the change is so gradual, you can almost not notice it. And I'm suggesting perhaps the way we think might change quite rapidly. That's disorientating. And overwhelming and uncomfortable. And I'm not denying any of that. I'm just merely noting that other peoples before us have lived through the same things. Political and social systems change, sometimes slowly, sometimes drastically. Consensuses last for certain periods, and then they fall apart. And the basic subconscious assumptions we have about the world, which can seem natural and innate to us in the moment, hardwired into our DNA almost, they go through periods where they work for us, they go through periods where they don't work for us, and they too change over time, sometimes slowly, sometimes radically. And we might not have expected or wanted to find ourselves in a world where our political, social, and economic institutions are declining, where once stable consensuses are falling apart, and where our basic conceptualizations are no longer fit for purpose. We might not have expected or wanted that, but nonetheless, I think we have to give serious thought to at least the possibility that that is indeed the world we're living in.